1994, my team was tasked to go and arrest a guy who clearly didn't want to be arrested all that well. And uh, he started shooting. He fired 18 times in less than five seconds and hit me 14 times with a high-powered rifle. uh, And I was lying on the ground for three hours. Before anyone could see you. Before anybody could get to me because of what he was doing. Mm. Um, his actions in keeping people at bay. So the blood loss was massive. Uh, Body holds 10 units of blood. I got down to the last two units of blood. Wow. Um, And the doctor, when he got to me, said that uh, at first sight, he thought I was already dead. There was no movement. There was no sound. There was no breathing. And uh, he thought, I'm already dead. I am here today with David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim. That's good to hear. We're also here with a very special guest, Derek McManus. How are you, Derek? Sensational, thanks. Great to be here. Thanks for having me in. No stress. Now, you, do you go by Derek or do you prefer Rick? Or uh, Derek. Derek, yeah. Do you know, I've never been called Rick. There you go. Which is the Aussie attitude of let's shorten everything, <laughs> which is wonderful. Times, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. At least it didn't get shorted to dare. Well, <laughs> I have had duh. Oh. No, no, we're leaving that alone. <laughs> Not quite as complimentary. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Excellent. Well, you're a very special guest for a few reasons. You have some philosophical things in in your work that we would like to talk about, but you also have a very interesting history, which David and I are very interested to hear about. So I'm hoping, Derek, you could open us up with just a little bit of, I guess, the the major points of your life that got you into this chair. Okay. So uh, I've been a policeman for 42 years. Mm -hmm. In 1989, I joined the Police Star Group. Uh, STAR is Special Task and Rescue, responsible for all manner of high-risk arrest, hostage siege, counter-terrorism, VIP security, uh, helicopter operations, underwater diving, recovery, all the exciting things in life, you know. (laughs) But they do come with inherent risk. Hmm. Um, And in 1994, my team was tasked to go and arrest a guy who clearly didn't want to be arrested all that well. And uh, he started shooting. He fired 18 times in less than five seconds and hit me 14 times wow. with a high-powered rifle. Uh, and I was lying on the ground for three hours. Before anyone could see you. Before anybody could get to me because mm. of what he was doing, mm. um, his actions in keeping people at bay. Mm-hmm. Um, so that little brief history is what got me into this chair today. <laughs> Absolutely, and it's um you know from what from what I know about this event already, it seems you're a medical medical marvel. Really, it it would have taken a a whole lot of um mental energy and and I guess even even practice at kind of staying meditative to even put yourself through that. Um, yeah, absolutely. Those three hours. Yeah, absolutely. It was um, uh, the other part that uh, got me into this chair today is the fact that I've come up with a, a philosophy of human durability. Mm-hmm. And human durability is about being able to go beyond resilience. Resilience is the ability to bounce back after yeah. things go wrong. Human durability is about sustaining optimal performance. Mm-hmm. And as you've alluded to, me being able to sustain that optimal performance of staying alive for the three hours that I was on the ground didn't come out of, oh, my gosh, what do I do now? Mm. It was I thought through the process beforehand. Mm. I had some idea of what I was going to deal with, some idea of how I might deal with it if it did happen. And so when it did happen, it was just into that essentially, as you described, a meditative state as well as staying aware of everything that's happening around me, being able to respond to anything that the shooter may have done during that time, 
but also being in that meditative state where my body is so relaxed that it's not demanding the use of the oxygen that uh, would normally be required and the blood isn't flowing quite as quickly uh, and that way I was able to sustain my life for longer than doctors can understand. That was going to be my next question was how bad was the blood loss? Well, you got yourself so calm you actually managed to reduce it. The it's a really deep there are no short answers with uh, this Mm. incident so the blood loss was massive Uh, body holds 10 units of blood I got down to the last two units of blood wow Um, and the doctor when he got to me said that uh, at first sight he thought I was already dead there was no movement there was no sound there was no breathing and uh, he thought I'm already dead he then described it that I took a last gasping breath and he thought, well, maybe we can do something. Now, at the time he was thinking this, he was standing in direct line of fire from the shooter. Bullets were whizzing around his ears. Wow. So it wasn't his thoughts of, can I save him? It was, do I risk my life to yeah. save him? But in relation to the blood loss, yes, I lost a massive amount of blood. But the doctor described it that as I was lying on the ground, I must have been so calm that the wounds that I had had actually got to the point of clotting. Yeah. And when I was picked up by the guys to race me out, now put this in perspective, I was lying there for three hours. The shooter was continuously shooting, reloading magazines, shooting again for the entire three hours. When the guys came in to get me, they literally risked their lives. They didn't know whether they would be shot and injured. They didn't know whether they'd be shot and killed. They didn't even know whether they were coming in to pick up Derek or coming in to pick up a body. Mm. Now they've rushed in, they've found me, they've picked me up and gone, he's alive, let's get him out of here. And as they've picked me up and started manhandling me out of here, that has disturbed all that clotting. Again, everything started bleeding again. Everything started bleeding again. Now, I'm not complaining about that in any way, shape or form. No, just got you out of there, which was awesome. Absolutely. So um, the blood loss was massive, but it had got to that point of, of clotting. Uh, the doctors, again, don't know exactly how that has happened, but part of it was I had that some idea of what I was going to deal with in that meditative state. Mm. There were four things that I knew I needed to do, and I'd thought about these beforehand. If I get shot, I need to be able to control panic, not let panic take control yeah. of the situation, not let panic take control of my body. I had to control shock, and that's the, the body's response to uh, injuries, trauma, or stress, um, and that Uh, affects blood flow and all the rest of it I had to slow down my heart rate I had to slow down my breathing and if I did those four things it would slow down my rate of bleeding and I'd survive that little bit longer Uh, my resting heart rate at the time uh, was 38 Um, yeah yeah, it was it was was really good good. Um, but I believe in that meditative state I either got down to that or even lower because I just completely relaxed in the midst of all this shooting happening, mm. you know. See, the really interesting thing with this is that at that point, you know, there would have been no science that would have helped explain this. And yet now, thanks to the Dutch guy, Wim Hof, yeah. who, his big thing is cold exposure. Yeah, you know, yeah. going into crazy cold. But he started to demonstrate that ability to control things that are meant to not have conscious control. Yeah. They're meant to be unconscious. And yet he's made the point repeatedly and people don't want to listen. People have probably been doing this throughout human history And most meditative traditions, it's certainly one of their aims. But so few people either ever get there or ever get there and then have the need to use it to stay alive. Yeah, absolutely. So there'd be someone like you occasionally where the work and that event on that day together, everyone goes, wow. And then we forget about it for another 20 years until someone with that knowledge and a terrible event, again, we see something, it's possible 
but for most people it's not normally probable. Correct. Correct. And unfortunately, that's how doctors quite often perceive people going through uh, operations or injuries or recovering from uh, their traumas. Um, when they describe what is possible for this person to achieve as a result of this injury, they look at what is common, what's yeah. the average, and let's not get you too excited about the possibilities. I spoke at a work cover compensation conference just recently. Uh, and I encouraged everybody there to embrace those people who want to try and achieve more and encourage them to keep them balanced, keep them mm. grounded and all the rest of it. But sometimes there are people that just go beyond any expectation because they've got a passion, because they've got a drive. It's more drive than anybody else. I'm, I'm fortunate I was one of those people, mm. but there's plenty of others out there too if they've give, been given the right support. Well, that's sort of the big thing that, you know, Stephen Kotler and Jamie Wheel kind of proved the point in their book Stealing Fire and that is if you look in adventure sport in the last 20 years every record in the world has been broken and doubled yeah. because people just decided okay it's not a question anymore of getting my body any more competent you know, bodies are about as good as they're going to be but we're just not using our brains effectively enough to tell our bodies what we need and want in any given situation yep. the training isn't there to get the body doing things the brain wants to do Absolutely. So that's just like the guy who broke the four-minute mile, yeah. uh, Roger... Bannister. Matt Bannister, yeah. yeah. So, you know, the theory was that the four-minute mile cannot be broken, will not be broken, not humanly possible to break it. And then when he broke it, there were about 10 people within, you know, six months that also broke it. Yeah. Because the they now realised it was possible. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to push myself a little bit harder, I'll get there. When people understand that things are possible, they're more likely to actually try for it. Yeah. yeah, they need the examples. So it's really important for the, the few people who combine the work and then the experience that proves it works to then try and spread the message. So in your Wim Hof's case, he makes the point that really until uh, his wife died and he had to go through the trauma of that, what he was doing was really just he found it interesting to see how far he could push his body. How much cold could he take? How yeah. much endurance could he do? But when his wife died and he was solely responsible for his children, he had to be the best role model he could be for them. Then someone says, well, no, I've done all this work. Okay, now I've got to teach other people. If it's helped me deal with this trauma, how can I help other people learn to deal with their traumas? Yep, yep, absolutely. And, uh, you know, what you've pointed out is that he was now working for his children's benefit, not yeah. his own. And that's and a really important transition that you transcend self. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When you're looking to help someone else or do something for someone, you've actually got to stack more inspiration because it's no longer about me. Yeah. It's not about my ego. It's actually about helping them and making the world a better place. How big an impact did it have on the star group guys around you when you came from back from that? Did a lot of them suddenly go, I'm going to pay a lot more attention to how Derek trains? <laughs> um I don't think there was anybody in Star Group that ever thought I would get back to Starry's. Right. Um, and, and I did go back to Starry's and it was two and a half years later, but there were some in there that even though I was able to go back physically, still had reservations about my psychological uh, ability to be back in that environment, whether yeah. it would be stressful. Uh, one of the fortunate things for me is that, um, excuse me, about five days after being in hospital, I threw my hand in the air and said, get me a psych. I want to talk to a psych. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't about, I think I'm weak, I think I've got problems. It was about, I wanted to pick their brains. Yeah, what tools can you give me that help this go faster? Exactly. Well, yeah. 
it's it's yeah it, it is about the tools that they could give me not to make it go faster but to help me understand what i might experience yeah so they've dealt with people who have dealt with trauma well they've dealt with people who dealt with it badly what's the difference what changes how can i draw on those experiences to be able to anticipate what i might deal with and if it does happen how would i best yeah. deal with it there's a fascinating example of that there's an american psychiatrist a guy called william glasser and he was the psychiatrist yes. on an orthopedic ward and the surgeons would walk in and ask people in, you know who are quadriplegic paraplegic may never get any you know sensational control back how are you feeling today and glass <laughs> used to just want to scream yes. like yes. you dum-dums that is the worst possible question yes how about you ask them what are you going to try and do today What's your purpose for the day? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Your brain's there, your brain's good. What's your purpose for the day? And it could be simply to sit and watch a documentary and think about it. But that was still empowering. It was the beginning of coming back from the crushing event that had put them in the orthopedic ward. And you think, that is so simple. And yet how many psychs get that critical point? Yeah, it it is a very simple thing, but it's only simple once you actually start thinking about it. Because it is that you know, nicety of human nature. We come in and we ask about feelings, and, mm. and you know, we always do it. It's always acceptable, mm. apart from, you know, oops, you know, in this situation it might not be. Um, they, everybody says, you know, oh, this is common sense. Everybody should know that. I have a theory that common sense lies in the realm of the expert. Mm. Somebody, yeah. somebody who doesn't have any experience can't ex- be expected to understand what's going on. It's the uh, the apprentices that start as a painter and they, you know, get the pranks played on them. You know, can you go down to the the workshop and get a, a can of striped paint or mm. yeah. a, a bottle of um, spirit level bubbles? Mm. Yeah, and they wander off because they don't know any better. Mm. So common sense <laughs> lies in the realm of those people who have some education in it. Mm-hmm. If you don't have that exposure to it, you can't be expected to know. However, your example of the psychiatrists coming in and asking, you know, how do you feel today? That's something that they should have thought about. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and, and getting those kind of transitions and then making sure they spread. You know, it's great to have a good idea. But say the interesting thing with William Glasser He's written most of his books to be read by the general populace because he's become so at odds with mainstream psychiatry by challenging people to take more responsibility, psychiatrists to be more switched on from day one. That Again, when you challenge your own profession too much, you then just have to get the message out as broadly as possible. So you realise that the messenger often gets shot. Yes, yes, absolutely. And yet, to go back to your thing of you know, when you went back to Star Group, mm. another side of this because you know, I've, I've done a fair amount of work with Special Operations Command, and you know, know a lot of people who've been injured in Afghanistan. And part of the issue when people come back from injury is everyone else in the team is then confronted by what can happen more clearly, more obviously. Yeah. So as much as they will make the argument, I oh, know it's about is Derek up to being back. There's a far deeper reflection in all of it is, can I watch someone who came back who may be tougher, luckier, and more hardworking than me? And he got the good outcome, and I might not. That is a far deeper thing that happens in those situations than the main people don't want to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and even at the time of the shooting, uh, when I was lying on the ground, Every resource was just thrown at getting me out, getting me safe, and yep. then resolving the uh, the high risk situation. Yep. But once that was over, 
I think everybody sat around and they've actually gone, wow, we're mortal. This could happen to us. In the 17-year history of Star Group prior to my shooting, um, there wasn't any serious injury whatsoever. People... We got most of our injuries when we were playing sport against yeah. each other because we got a little bit excited. They'd had a golden period of doing this high-risk stuff with such competence that they kept beating the odds. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Well, and it's also that uh, specialisation and professionalism that we had. The way we ran our operations, we ran it to be as safe as we possibly yeah. could. And if there was a risk, we tried to minimise it. And it had worked well up until this point where somebody had actually taken very specific action. So Derek, your your training and I suppose your ability to get into those meditative states that perhaps, you know, even David suggested might be to the envy of your your colleagues in Star Group. Was that a result of training that you had or you know, practices that you had employed in your personal life outside of Star or was those were those things that you learned through Star and just employed maybe exceptionally well yeah it, it's it's interesting I've, I've reflected on this many many times and i i don't know exactly where it happened mm. um certainly our training within star group is extreme um and we are always told when you get into a difficult situation relax think it through duh, 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 um, but never given any training on how to relax mm. you're just told relax you've got to relax just relax and essentially it's going back to um, you have had so much training, you know what to do, so you shouldn't be stressed. And, and that's um, stress exposure. So mm. the more you're exposed to it, the less stressed you'll buy it because you're so used to it. Mm. Um, but I think some of the crux of my training to be relaxed came from the dive section. Mm. Um, because we were underwater and because oxygen is a finite resource when you're underwater, uh, you had to work, you had to be taught how you could relax underwater and not consume as much oxygen. If you got into a a difficult situation, you started panicking, you started rushing around, you're just going to chew through that oxygen and your time underwater is going to be safe. Um, Instead of being for an hour, it's going to come down to 45 minutes or 40 minutes or 30 minutes and the more you panic, the shorter it gets. Um, I remember I I had one dive operation, uh, the first dive operation after I finished my training and it was... Uh, in the Murray River, up at Hogwash Bend, somebody had uh, drowned and hadn't been able to find them. We were tasked to go down there, and it was basically dark in the middle of the night. Uh, and they've just said, "Listen, you know, we know this area, so you know, we're going to do it." And it was my first job, and I was a little bit nervous. And we went down, and I thought I was down there for ages, and felt myself running out of air. Came to the surface, and they've gone, "What are you doing up already?" I've gone, "I've run out of air." You've only been down there seven minutes, and this is (laughs) a cylinder that should last for an hour. And I've gone seriously, and I realised that I must have been just that little bit overwhelmed. The next cylinder that I went down on, uh, I was down for about an hour and forty. So just that being able to control how your mind works, how relaxed you are, can completely extend your your ability to use oxygen, relax the body and and lower the demand of the body for that oxygen. And I think that's the training that I used while I was lying on the ground. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't wasn't something that came to me in the moment. Mm. It is something that I thought about beforehand. And I think this is one of the things that many people don't do. David, you spoke before about taking responsibility. Mm. We don't take responsibility for our choices and the consequences that could come of them. Mm. We always go in, we make a choice because we see all the little shiny things that are around the place. Um, Yeah, I know there are some risks, but if they happen, they'll destroy my life. But 
I'm going to take it anyway because it mm. usually works out for everybody else. And then when it does go bad, they haven't thought about it properly and they don't know how to manage it. So one of the things that I did prior to the shooting was look at my choices of going into Star Group um, and said, this is the absolute worst that could happen. I could get shot and injured. I could get shot and killed. I could be in a car praying. I could fall down a cliff. I, lots of things could happen that you know give me a serious injury or death. Um, and there are all these other shiny things. You know, we've got guns, we've got weapons, we've got boats, we've got helicopters, we've got you know all these exciting things. So I looked at the two extremes, um, and then I said, if the worst does happen, do I have the resources to manage it? Um, and that was a very confronting conversation with myself. But I also took it one step further and I started looking at the people around me and I went and had a conversation with my wife. And I said, if I get shot and I die, what's your life going to look like afterwards? And will you be able to manage that um, if it does happen? So, And it was a very confronting conversation with her. Mm. So we had to explore all the, all the possibilities of death through to serious injury, through to minor injury and all those things. One of the other things that I asked her or we discussed was if I do die, what would I like her to tell my children about the person I am? Mm. And it really is that looking at your eulogy before it actually happens. Mm. But it was very confronting. But I think in having those discussions with myself and with my partner uh, or my wife at the time, um, and, and I say my wife at the time, we're now divorced, but... In having those discussions between myself and her, I think it was taking responsibility for my choices of going into those uh, situations, but also taking responsibility for the possible consequences before they even happened. Mm. So one of the, the discussions we had was that in my mind, I was quite passionate about the choices I was making. I absolutely loved the job that I was going to do and I saw value for the community and all those things. Mm. And I said, if I get shot and I don't die anything better than death is going to be a bonus for me. Mm. Anything better than mm. death. Mm. And even if I spend the rest of my life in a wheelchair, so long as I'm able to interact with my children and have an interaction and have an influence in their life, I'm going to be quite happy. Mm-hmm. And I needed her to know that beforehand mm. because if you try and tell her afterwards, she'll be going, oh, is it real? Is it true? Yeah. Is it just a platitude? You know, all those things. See, an American friend of mine uh, went to Afghanistan as a JTAC yeah. and the guy in front of him trod on the IED that was made for a vehicle. Oh. So the guy in front got vaporized and Mike's eyes got vaporized. Okay. So he went to open his eyes after and there's a dark corner. He goes, oh, it must be a big dust cloud. <laughs> and then kind of, uh, no. But at 22 had to do the calculation of, well, that was a thing I wanted more than anything. And yeah. now I get on with the rest of it. Yeah, right. And I find something else that is as thrilling as being a JTAC. Yeah. So you can make the choice, recognize the consequences. Mm. And even though you haven't lived them, you still know you'll just find the next really valuable thing to do yeah absolutely so it's about saying i'm not i may not have the life that i used to have Mm. but i'm still going to have a great life Mm. because again chasing meaning you know there's as much meaning as there is thrill in the kind of things you were doing they're always for a meaningful purpose absolutely even if there was an adrenaline buzz you know in you know repelling out of a helicopter whatever there's still the you're doing it for this really important reason that's going to make other people's lives better correct yeah. Absolutely correct, yeah. I've got another friend who uh, was an airline pilot, uh, Dale Elliott. He's now passed away. Um, absolute legend of a man. He was an uh, airline pilot, out for a ride on his uh, motorbike in the Riverland. Dog ran out in front of him. He hit the dog, fell off, broke his back. Mm-hmm. Now, when he realised he'd broken his back and he was in hospital, within days, he's just turned to the doctors and said, oh, this is excellent. 
<laughs> like, what do you mean this is excellent? He said, I get to use all those car parks that are really close to the shopping centre doors. <laughs> and so he'd already found the humour, yeah. but he, he knew that he was going to find some way of still enjoying his it life. He changed gear to go, I'm doing something different. Yep. And, you know, as you're sort of talking about this thing of people not taking responsibility for choices, I sometimes think the only advantage of being blind is you know everything is potentially dangerous. <laughs> so you better think yes. a little bit better because there are more likely to be small painful consequences yep. on a daily basis. Mm. Yep. So just accept thinking things through as normal and doing fast risk analysis. You know, These people who agonize for a week, if it's not going to kill you, don't agonize for a week. Correct. You know, nominate five minutes, agonize for five, make your decision and get back on with doing something productive. Yeah, absolutely. And make that decision, take that action, but don't be locked into only doing that. No. So, you know, one of the things that I talk about in the workshops that I run is that, you know, we've got to have plan A, but then we've got to have plan B yep. and plan C and plan D. And my history in Star Group makes me go all the way to plan Z. Yeah. Right. Because I just like the contingencies. But mm. if you've only got plan A, you're going to get stuck in it. Mm. If you've got plan B, plan C, plan D, it means, well, I can make this decision. And if it doesn't quite work out for me, mm. I'm going to fl flick quickly to plan B. Yeah, and okay, that's because you're not always going to make proper right. preparation. Is that you don't waste time working out what the next plan is. Yeah. So you still feel I'm still moving fast. I'm still being effective, because you can immediately change gear from one to the next. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a super stoic practice, which we've talked about on this podcast before. And another thing that I'm kind of interested in is I can imagine in in Star that you were exposed to quite a bit more discipline training than perhaps a standard police officer. Yep. Um, experience. Would you? Kind of, would you liken that kind of discipline, or sorry, would you um, attribute some of that discipline training or the discipline that you had to even get into Star Group to putting those plans in place as well, and like having 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 the discipline to bear the kind of suffering or thought to to do to go through that? Yeah, you know, it's it, it's interesting because I've never really looked at myself as a disciplined person i'm mm. just go about doing the stuff that i i do because i want to do it and just recently i oh, a little bit of back history i love sugar <laughs> there's no two ways about it and we it. can I, say that from the lovely cupcakes you bought this morning <laughs> absolutely so uh, but i do the work around it so that you know i'm i'm not overweight i'm not affected by it and, and i probably should still cut down my sugar but you know, a lot of people say, oh, my gosh, you eat so much chocolate, you can't go without it. And, and at one point I've gone, yeah, I can. And they've mm -hmm. gone, no, no, no. So I went for a month without any, any junk food. Mm -hmm. um, I allowed myself still to, and not without any alcohol either. Mm -hmm. uh, so I allowed myself still to have hot chocolates because that's mm -hmm. how I socialise, you know, little things like that. Mm -hmm. But essentially went completely uh, cold turkey without any chocolate or lollies or sugar in my tea or anything else mm -hmm. like that. Um, and people have gone, how did you do that? And I just go, well, I decided that I didn't want to do it and mm. I just and didn't just do it. just did it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that was a few years ago and, and, and I was talking to people and saying this and, and I've gone, gee, I'm reflecting on something that was a few years ago. So uh, last year I did it for two months, mm. just completely cold turkey. And, and I've just gone, well, I just decided to do it. And people have said, that is an amazing amount of discipline. And I've gone, I suppose it is, but it, it's just what I do. And I think that's one of those things that's innate to many of the people in Star Group. Mm -hmm. It's not something that we actually think about how we go about doing these things. It's just the way we operate. Discipline is normal. Discipline yes. is freedom. 
if you just get it done, you don't have to think about it. Yeah, absolutely. If you want to achieve something, yeah. you put that discipline in place. You create the habits mm. that help you to achieve it. Um, and so I, is it discipline or is it focus or is it passion or is it drive? Or, you know, there's lots of different ways that you can think about it. But I, I do certainly accept that, you know, when I reflect back on it, that being able to go without the sugar for two months is a reflection on the amount of discipline I can have if I want to. Yes, if you and want to. And it's got to be about the things that I want to because people say, you know, my mind is very organised. If you walked into my office and looked at my desk, <laughs> you would say I was the least organised person mm-hmm. you've ever seen. So, you know, that doesn't excite me. So it's the passion is playing a very big role and each person's going to have some different underpinning for discipline. Absolutely. So for me with my site, discipline is incredibly practical. The day goes better with a cane if you're disciplined. Absolutely. But beyond that for other things it will be the passion like you know practicing yoga every day is a consequence of you know a discipline that comes from passion rather than necessity so for each thing it can be a different reason why you become disciplined your discipline for you know controlling sugar is going to be different to the discipline you used to have in the job of star group it always be a little bit different depending on what we need to achieve and which part of us is engaged. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, to be in Star Group, you have to be able to train hard, you have to be fit, you have to be strong, you have to have the endurance, you know, all those sorts of things. Um, and now that I've come out of Star Group, I don't have a purpose to stay fit. Mm. But I like doing a lot of bike riding. Um, and uh, one of my mates came to me and said, hey, listen, you know, the world titles for cycling are on in... Um, in Melbourne, I think it was back in 2009, 2010, somewhere back then. And he said, do you want to ride across there with me and we'll go to the world titles? And I've gone, that's a big ask, but yeah, let's do it. <laughs> uh, and we found uh, a group of uh, six of us that went, rode over there. Now, I didn't have any reason to push myself to be an exceptional cyclist beforehand, but now that we were going to be riding four days in a row, 200 k's a day, I had to get out and train. So, you know, the discipline was there and we went out and we did it. Uh, rode 200 k's a day for four days in a row and loved every moment of it. Wow. I'd love to stay at that level of fitness, mm. but I've got nothing to drive me, no purpose. Yeah, you've got to have that purpose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Would you say the result... Oh, sorry, okay. no, go to... Okay. Would you say the result of those kind of practices puts you in better stead to deal with other things? So what I mean is, is, is the practice of being disciplined about your sugar or the practice of doing the cycling, has that... Has that have you felt stronger? Have you felt more self-assured after doing those things? Do you know, again, that's a, an interesting question because my straight answer would be no, I don't feel more self-assured, mm. but it's the way I've been all my life. So mm. can I feel more than the way I've been all my life? Mm. And, and so I understand the purpose of the question though. Since the shooting, I have started looking at what I did to prepare myself to be able to deal with that. And I honestly didn't think I was any different to anybody else. If anybody wanted to do this, they could. But once I started speaking, and I didn't start speaking corporately to start off with, some of the corporate said, you've got to come and tell my company about mm. you know, mm. what you've done and how you did it. And I've gone, yeah, you know, don't really feel comfortable with that. I felt like they wanted to put me up there because I was a hero. Mm. And I'm not the hero in this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hero in this story are the doctors that treated me, my mates that came in under fire to get me, the police that stood at the cordons with bullets whizzing around. They are all the heroes. I was the guy who got shot and lay on the ground and said, come and get me. Mm. Um, so I didn't feel comfortable standing on stage and, and telling the story and getting paid for it. But the blood service came to me 
and said, Derek, you used a stack of blood. I used 24 units of blood in seven hours. Body holds 10. Wow. I was yeah. flushed through a couple of times. <laughs> so they said, you used a stack of blood. Would you like to say thank you to blood donors and encourage more blood donors? Uh, and I've gone, absolutely. If I can say thank you, no problems at all. Because it was no longer about me anymore. Mm. It was about saying thank you to them. And once I started speaking to them, I found there were so many messages in what I was saying that I just didn't realise it was there. Mm. And so I started looking at what I had done and how I'd gone about achieving it. And I've gone, okay, maybe there is something more in this that mm. I'm seeing as just my normal life, but it might be different to what other people do. Mm-hmm. So clearly being shot is, I guess, a, a metaphor for over- overcoming like intense stress and, yeah. and hardship. Do you think that people need these kinds of forces uh, or like negative forces or even disciplinary uh, schemes to overcome to to realize like a like a greatness or to flourish? Do you think that you being shot um, and and you telling that story, you're using that to encourage other people um, to overcome negative forces? But do you think they need to be there to learn from them? I. I use the story as a catalyst for discussion mm-hmm. um, because it is a story that draws people in. Um, and I didn't survive the shooting because of the shooting. It's what I did beforehand, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and and I had have I've had adversities in my life, you know, in the past. Uh, as a child growing up, I was bullied. I had a great childhood. Don't mm-hmm. get me wrong, mm-hmm. but you know there were periods of bullying there, which you know I was able to work through and grew from it. And you know sometimes it drew tears and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. So it was you know that whole realm of trauma that I went through, uh, and throughout you know my early working career, there were some traumas and you know all these things. Mm-hmm. But they built me into the person who was able to handle that. But a lot of people don't make that decision to take the responsibility to confront these are the possible things that could happen to me and when they do happen to them that's when their life is destroyed because I've never thought about it beforehand I don't know what to do Mm. I've made a stupid decision Uh, what do I do now somebody come and help me come and somebody come and save me rather than taking responsibility for garnering all the support you can get but also taking responsibility for for driving that themselves Um, so I don't think people need to have the adversity but for many many people it does take the adversity to actually make them start taking responsibility it brings it to the forefront mm. it puts it, it it puts it in you know um, in their conscious mind yeah. so i think about this a lot because i've lived a, a fairly i'm not going to say sheltered life but i haven't faced too much uh, adversity and sometimes i almost long for it just out of the for the sake of learning from that adversity and uh, but it's it's I think your perspective is really interesting and it's changed my thinking on that, which is that it's not necessarily about facing the adversity. It's being prepared for it. Um, yeah. It is also the philosophy that I talk about is human durability. Hmm. Uh, and I've got the model for that and, hmm. and I've got a human durability continuum. And and I think it's important oh, when I talk about this continuum, everybody goes, oh, my gosh, that just makes sense. For me, it's just like it doesn't make sense. It's just practical. Hmm. Um, but it is a continuum that if you understand where you sit on this continuum, you're able to understand what you need to do to get to the next stage. So I believe that everything that we start in life, we start as fragile. Mm. When you are brand new, when you're learning something, you've never done it before, you are looking for guidance, you're looking for coaching, you're looking for mentoring because you've got no experience, right? And so you are fragile, you're making mistakes, things are going wrong. 
But with good guidance, mentoring uh, and coaching, you can learn how to solve those problems um, and get better at it. And then eventually you'll get to the point of being resilient where if something goes wrong, you're able to problem solve for yourself. Mm. Something goes wrong, you step back, you'll contemplate it, you reflect on it and you'll go, yep, I know what the answer is that to that. You step back into the fray, you solve the problem and you move on. Mm. Now, you've got to be accepting that when you first start, you're fragile, you need to learn. Please tell me information to help me, coach me, teach me. Um, and then you'll get to resilient. Once you get to resilient, you start reflecting on your own learning. Mm. Okay, because of what I've learned and what I now know I have to do to solve that problem, let's try and avoid that problem. Mm. Okay, so I'm going to make these choices which is going to put me into circumstances. If those circumstances come up, what are going to be the indicators that tell me it's going well or what are the indicators that are going to show up that will tell me it's going badly? Mm. And when those indicators happen, how do I respond at that time? Because it's the response when the indicators show up that you can keep on track and you can sustain that optimal performance rather than going, oh, I see the indicator, but I haven't got a plan for it, so I'm just going to stick to the original plan. Mm. And when it falls over at the end, you go, oh, if only I'd done something back then. Mm. You know. And the critical thing about the extra awareness is you don't just end up being resilient. You come out of the situation better than you went in because your hypothetical plan of what you would do if something went wrong, you've implemented it, it's worked well, it's legitimized why having the plans in place is so beneficial mm -hmm. that you keep getting a little bit better because your plans work better so you plan faster you plan more broadly you can be prepared for more situations mm -hmm. yep absolutely yeah. uh, and so you move along that continuum starting out as fragile you get to resilient and eventually you'll become durable now we as humans once we get into this realm of being durable in this this arena that we're operating in um, that then becomes our comfort zone we can operate really well in here we're really really comfortable but as humans i honestly believe that once we get into the comfort zone we get bored you yeah, always have to have a new challenge and this is where absolutely you know from 17 years of teaching as much as i want to say you know it'd be nice if people didn't have to have hardship and risk the reality is watching the consequence of young people have permanently less and less risk over 17 years. Now at 19 or 20, even resilience is a daunting concept, let alone true durability or anti-fragility, you know, as Nassim Nicholas Taleb would call it, that the starting point is so much lower that even resilience now is taking too much work. Yeah, helicopter parenting has, has yeah. got a lot to answer for. But I still think our youth these days are very resilient kids. They learn quickly. They really do. Once you are thrown into a situation where you have to learn, most of them learn quickly. The helicopter parenting where they just turn to their parents and go, fix this for me, mm. mum, dad, throw money at it or, or whatever. Yes, it's got a lot to answer for. But certainly, yeah, I still have great faith in, in, in the kids that are growing up. Yeah, I, I just want them to get over the fear of small risks faster. Because it's they get started, but they take too long worrying about risks that aren't going to kill them. Yeah, they worry about risks that may affect at best their social status, and, and, and that consumes is, too much time. And this is why I reflect on you know as I was growing up, I was getting bullied. I had a great life, but there were still bullying experiences mm. that I worked through and understood. Uh, and when I got into the working environment, everybody goes, "Oh, we've got to stop bullying in school." Well, bullying, I'm sorry, doesn't stop when you get a job. No. So, you know, the bullying that I experienced as I was growing up, now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we need to have bullying, 
but I think it's a good experience to have. It's another if, part of society. It's always potentially going to be there. Absolutely. So learn to deal with it. And that's yeah. that's the key. Learn to deal with it. If we have bullying in school and we say, oh, my gosh, let's take this bullying, you just go away and have a nice time. We'll deal with the bully. Mm. No, we've actually got to teach kids how to deal with it. Yes, we've got to stop the bullying, but we've also got to teach the children how to have those resources Mm. to be able to manage it Mm. Um, because that will take them on further in life and when they experience things later where there are just challenges, they will have some resources, they'll have some skills. So I want to ask, perhaps you can start it off with, we've, we've touched on human durability and we've, I think our listeners probably have a good sense of what it is, but perhaps you might want to summarize it in, in a succinct way that you, you would normally, many words normally you would give. Like. Yeah, however many words you would like. But, 25 words or less. Yeah, no, however many words you would like. <laughs> yeah, and, no, it, oh, sorry. And then if we, after that, if we could follow on with how you think, if, if everyone were to cultivate human durability, how that would affect society as a whole. What you think our society would look like if everyone took your kind of practices. Okay, so human durability um, has come out of the shooting and it's it's what I've reflected on of what I did that allowed me to do what I did while I was on the ground and then still have a very positive life afterwards. Mm. Um, and it really is just about going beyond resilience. It's not about waiting for catastrophes to happen and then working out what do I do now. Mm. Is that taking responsibility for choice and consequence mm. and having the actions in place that if it does happen... I can respond to it straight away. And it's about sustaining optimal performance. Um, And it really is about dealing with the uncertainties of life because it's the uncertainties of life that are our biggest challenges, right? When we're nervous, when we don't know how things are going to turn out, when when we think it might go this way, it might go that way, what do I do? It's as you were talking about before, I don't want to make a decision. I don't know which is the right decision to make, which direction to go. It's the uncertainties that are our biggest challenge. The process that you know I've analysed that I went through to get to to that level of thinking and that level of uh, insight, um, that process essentially takes most of the uncertainties out, and and I t- I call it uh, open, honest, confronting conversations with ourselves, with our partners, with our family, with our teams, and if we have those open, honest, confronting situations about the extremes that could possibly happen, the good plus the bad, and we prepare for those extremes. Everything else in between actually gets easy Mm. because I'm prepared for the extremes. Oh, if it's only that that happens, oh, gosh, we can deal with that really well. And I say there are two levels of comfort that come from having those confronting conversations. The first level of comfort is that, oh, my gosh, that's an extreme. Do we have the resources to deal with it? Yes, we've got the resources. We've got the finance. We've got the people in place. If those things go wrong, we can do this. We can do this. Actually, really comfortable. We'll be able to manage it uncertainty is out of the way instead of going into it tentatively and going let's see how it works no no we can make this work let's go for it and you go in bold you go in brave you go in hard you make it happen even quicker than you might have so there's that level of comfort yes we can manage it the other level of comfort is you go actually no we don't have the finances we don't have the resources or oh if i make this decision it's it's going to destroy my social you know whatever Uh, and the comfortable position there is I know it's not going to be manageable. I need to step back and reassess it. Now, you don't have to completely lock it out. You may go away and get some further training, some other resources, uh, some other support network, go back in and do it again. Or you may just step back and go, oh, no, that was going to be a stupid decision anyway. But there's a level of comfort in that, that you've actually gone through the process. You've taken the uncertainty out. I know what the possibility might have been or what the outcome might have been. So there's that, those two levels of comfort. Um, 
But essentially, if everybody was to approach life in this way, um, we would lose the uncertainty. We'd have more confident people. We'd also have more relaxed people. Mm. Uh, And I was listening to a radio show on the way in here today. In America, they've estimated that loss of productivity uh, at work costs through stress and anxiety and those sorts of things costs something like $300 million a year. Wow. You know, just through loss of productivity. So if we can get people into a position where they take away the uncertainty, they reduce stress, they improve confidence, um, because we've got so many contingency plans for what might happen, we're also going to increase efficiency and effectiveness. And so the possibility of being more productive just is astronomical. See, as you're describing this, it's making me think of Chris Hatfield's wonderful example when he was a Canadian astronaut. And, you know, he got massive pain in his left eye in space. The eyelid went down, pain, can't see. And then it started moving to the other eye. He's like, okay, I'm going blind in space. Yep. Okay, we trained for the outside of my visor being covered in gunk. So, right, this hurts, but I can finish the job. Mm -hmm. I don't really want this to happen, but we've planned to fail. We've planned for enough things to go wrong. So even though there was pain, there wasn't suffering about what to do next. And that's an interesting distinction that lots of people seem to make in multiple traditions. If you've got a plan, there's just pain. If you don't have a plan, pain and suffering go together. And it's suffering that in the end debilitates you. You know, you're suffering over making the decision. You're suffering over not knowing what to do. You're suffering over not knowing if you made the best decision. Whereas if you know what you want to do, there's still pain, but it's not the end because you know what you think you want to do next. I I think the lack of a, a plan certainly brings up uncertainty and uncertainty starts playing on your emotions. Mm. And in the, the workshops that I run, I describe that when our emotions and our rational thinking sit on an even plane, we can make decisions, we can contemplate, because everything's nice and easy. Our Mm. emotions are comfortable, everything's going well. We can contemplate, we can plan, we can reflect, we can consider, we can discuss and all those sorts of things. But as soon as things start going wrong, that uncertainty comes in. We're starting to lose control. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to manage this. Our emotions start going high, our rational thinking starts going low. And when our rational thinking is low, that's when we make those decisions mm. or take the actions. We look, we look back on we go, my training tells me I should not have done that. Mm. Why would I have done Because the emotions are high, the rational thinking goes out the window. All the blood that's in the body, you know, the, the, uh, the human body physiological response to stress and trauma is to reroute the blood to the essential organs for fight or flight. Mm. Right, One of the, the parts that closes down is the frontal lobes, mm. and that's where we do our creative thinking. Um, and so if that's closed down, our rational thinking is low, we make those decisions we, refle- uh, we, re- um, we regret later. Mm. But if we can bring the emotion back down again, and I, there's several ways that I talk about it in the workshop, but the one big one that we're discussing here is some idea of what you're going to deal with some idea of how you're going to deal with it and having so many plans that you go actually we haven't prepared for this one but it's very similar to Mm. and that's what you're talking about with Hatfield okay I'm starting to lose my vision okay this is very similar to when they said that my visor might get clogged and I might not be able to see Mm. okay so I have a way out of this Mm. now I say that that gives him optimism Mm. 
and, and I talk about five drivers for success. The number one driver for success is optimism. Mm. If you've got a sense of optimism for the future, you are more likely to keep on pushing. If there's not going to be any reward for the effort you're putting in, well, why would I even bother trying? Yeah. I may and as well give up now. And that's the significant thing with everything you're talking about today. It's not a passive optimism either. It's not an Australian, she'll be right optimism. No. It's an active optimism of I'm taking responsibility for this turning out well. You know, the optimism is grounded in a deliberateness. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I, I hear a lot of people saying, oh, the one thing we need in life is hope. No, what hope you need is, is active passive. optimism. Absolutely, hope is passive. Hope is, I hope somebody else is going to be doing something. I hope mm. that will go right. No, no, optimism is what can I do? What do I have? What reasons do I have to believe that it's going to uh, turn out well? Mm. Um, and then you've got to do the thinking behind it and, and all the rest of it. Yeah. So you've talked a little bit about optimum performance as well. I'm kind of wondering if you could go into a little bit of detail on what that concept is. It sounds really interesting. I'd love for you know america to save 300 million dollars a year or make it maybe make 300 million dollars yeah, a year. yeah and then yeah. i suppose similar number for australia would be about 20 million if we're going off population yeah that's yeah. right yeah yeah mm-hmm. um yeah so optimal performance a lot of people uh, talk about peak performance and peak performance is important love peak performance mm-hmm. but we can't sustain peak performance yeah. you know uh and people go oh my god i'm not at my peak i've got to get back to my peak i've got to get back to my peak um and i you know i reflect on certainly what uh, my thinking was for the shooting but then i also think on um our olympic athletes mm. you know they want to win the olympic gold medal in fact i was uh, talking to nettie edmonton uh, last night and she's talking about her plans um for she's a track cyclist um, amazing, amazing woman. But uh, she was talking about her plans for uh, Tokyo and getting a uh, gold medal there. Uh, and I reflect on that. They train for one Olympics and then they start training for the next Olympics. And in between that four-year period, they have peaks, they have troughs, they have time off, they have time down, they have their massages, then they start building for the World Championships. And they'll peak at the World Championships and then they'll have time off and then they have time down and do all those sorts of things. So they are sustaining an optimal performance. For the demands that are on them at that time, they are doing the very best that they need to to make the most of those circumstances. So optimal performance is different to peak performance, and optimal performance is the only thing that is really sustainable. But optimal performance is the very best that you can possibly do in the circumstances you find yourself. So when I look at what I did in the shooting, um, even before I was shot, um, I said to myself, extremely fit, extremely strong, all those sorts of things. When we went to that house, we were all operating at the peak of our abilities uh, and it was a peak performance. But I also had already thought through the fact that if I get shot and I get injured, depending on how bad the injury is, if it's a minor injury, yes, I'll be able to run and hide and you know shoot back and do all those things that I need to do. But if it's a major injury, what might my optimal performance be in that stage? And if my optimal performance is I'm shot and I'm lying on the ground, what do I need to do in those circumstances to sustain my life? Mm-hmm. And that sustaining my life was optimal performance for the circumstances that I now found myself in. But I thought about it beforehand. It wasn't getting into that situation going, oh, my gosh, what do I do now? It was already thinking that my peak performance at that time, which is optimal, 
is going to be just being able to control panic, control shock, slow down my heart rate, slow down my breathing, and hope the guys are able to get in and, and help me. Uh, and certainly, you know, talking about the, the story of the shooting extrapolates a lot of the thoughts that went through my mind as I was going through that process of going deeper and deeper and, and, and more dire in the circumstances, but still maintaining that positive attitude, that sense of optimism, that there is something I can do, there is going to be a positive outcome from this. It's interesting that you know, you've talked about the dive training today in a couple of different you know, contexts. Yeah. And really what you're saying now reminds me so much of what people like David Goggins and uh, other people have written about you know, the drown-proofing phase of SEAL training. Yep. Look, just go to the bottom of the pool with your feet tied and your hands tied, slow your heart down, slow your breathing down, make that breath last because you're only going to have the energy to bob up occasionally. It's going to take so much effort and you're going to be doing this for the next hour. Absolutely. You don't want to need to bob too often, so just calm down. And again, you know, a lot of people get through the other physical stuff and seem to do brilliantly, but get to that thing where it's got to be mind over matter. And that's either it's going to be fine or that's when they break in the training. Absolutely. Uh, and our Star Group selection course really defines that for everybody. They put us through massive physical trauma. Uh, oh, trauma, probably a bad word to describe it. But excess, physical, physical stress. Excess. Yeah. Mm. Um, and, and they run us right down to the very base of our energy. We've only got enough energy to do what we need to do. Our thinking can't be at those next two levels up where we can go, oh, this is what I want to do, but the instructors expect me to do this, but this is what they would have said. No, it's just, I'm so exhausted, I'm just going to do what I have to do. And that is what we are looking for. It's not for the fittest person. It's not for the strongest person. It's for the person who can think under pressure. Mm. When everything else is going wrong, is their mind still strong enough to keep on thinking? Um, and every member of Star Group is selected partly for that. Don't get me wrong, the physical aspect of it is very important as well. But we've actually had people that have done the assessment and failed the physical component because yeah. they're not quite strong enough. You can build the physical. Yeah. The mind is a harder thing to build. Against the wonderful thing we're looking for in selection at Two Commando, trainability. Absolutely. You know, if yep. your body's not quite there, we can work on that. But your head has to already be trainable, which means no matter how exhausted, how much pain, how much fear, you keep thinking and learning. Yep. Absolutely. And they've, you know, they need both, but they need that most. They can work on the body after. Yeah. The ability to think and respond to your surroundings. Yeah, situational right. awareness. Yep. Absolutely. Why do you think that optimal performance is not just something we achieve naturally? What is it that's stopping us from kind of naturally assuming these kind of peaks and troughs when we need them? I think there's a natural tendency for us as humans to try and find the easy path. Mm. And, you know, I'm certainly in that boat as well i want to find the easy path for me my easy path takes me to a higher level because that's what i want to achieve but even in trying to achieve that i'm not going to take the hard route i'm going to find the easiest way that i can possibly get there um and and maybe people don't have enough aspiration um, and they can just go do you know something all i want is this little bit so i can take this easy path um, and just do it and if things go wrong let me work out what I can do then because the challenges they face maybe aren't all that big in their normal life. Mm. But they don't start thinking about 
okay, what if there's a global financial crisis and everything goes wrong and my business collapses and um, how do I manage that? What happens if I'm in a car accident? Uh, what happens if my partner dies? What happens if my children get sick? Now, don't think about all those other things that can go wrong. I just want to think about the easy things because this is where I'm comfortable thinking. I don't want to mm. think about the extremes. Comfort. Yep. Well, that big evolutionary drive too that, okay, today was a good hunting day out in the savannah. We ate a large amount of meat <laughs> and then we found the blueberries. Yes. Right. Let's sit still for 36 hours and digest that because <laughs> we've just got a day and a half off because we're so full. Yeah. So when things are good, we have the remains of hard wiring. That's when we should do nothing. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a big thing to work against. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I haven't done any research into this, but I think it comes down to how much passion you've got for wanting to achieve something yeah. bigger. Well, as you know, um, Angela Duckworth worked out at West Point, you know, the US Army had never been able to work out who would make it through reliably. Yep. And she came up with two questionnaires and she got to 85% reliability of who would make it through West Point by really? her second questionnaire. And it came down to passion and persistence. And the combination of the two was the trick. Okay. People could have a heap of passion and some persistence or a heap of persistence and some passion. But to get through a really difficult thing, it's got to be passion and persistence that are related. The passion has to be for the thing you're persistent at and the persistence has to be to achieve the thing you're passionate about. Yeah. If they're in balance, suddenly the sky starts pretty much becoming the limit. Right. But without the balance, then we're in real trouble. And that's the thing. You know, police officers, they know why they're going to work. So to step up the next level to star group, you know how much more you can theoretically achieve. There's a very clear combination of passion there and the persistence to do a difficult job every day. Yeah, the absolutely. habits that builds yep. in looking after yourself, looking after your friends, looking after your family. These things together are such a powerful combination. Yep, absolutely. And and uh, Angela Duckworth, uh, she wrote the book Grit. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I'd love to see what those uh, questionnaires were. Yeah, I don't know if they're available, but they'd be fascinating if they were. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm fortunate that I have some backing and uh, you from, might be able to get away in yeah well i spoke to the right person so i now have uh, the university of south australia school of psychology collaborating with me in my research and there may be just a connection in there that i'm able to listen i might even just wander across wander across there's a derek attitude i'm just going to wander across and have Say a conversation hi. with angela but i might be able to go across and, and have this conversation with angela and actually you know uh, and speak with a yeah researcher to researcher and get a clearer answer than yeah, she yeah. can put in a book yeah 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 absolutely I'd love to see what drove you know what really drives me is what drove her to want to research that I think it was a case that she was at Penn State under Martin Seligman yep. so yep. the main guy in positive psychology yep. and was looking for a postdoctoral thing and Martin had helped design the new positive psychology bundle for U.S. Army. Yep. where they'd realised you can't just hope a 19-year-old knows what positive psychology is. You know, knowing what positive emotions are, engagement, relationships, meaning, accomplishment, they're words until you think about them and you go, how am I going to implement them every day? Yeah. So I think it was very much an extension of sort of the PERMA positive emotion project in Army to then look at, okay, if we can use it to help people, can we also use these ideas to work out who we need to invest in to help them get over the hurdles because they've got so much potential. 
Yeah. So I didn't realise that she was working with Martin Seligman. Yeah. But certainly he was working with Rhonda Corman when they implemented that for the US Army. Yeah. And I've spoken to uh, one of the army officers that were exposed to that training and they said the first training was absolutely sensational. Yes. But then it didn't develop on after that. Well, the problem so, is they turned it into a rollout of online. So yes. some things that really yes. need to be a person teaching you with live, excited voice and gestures and a smile and is diminished when it's just read the words and correct. tick the box. But it's also got to be yeah. one of those things that evolves because once you learn the first part, yeah, what if you you're next? just doing the same thing again, yeah. well, you get bored, you get un, uh, uninterested. It so. becomes another ticker yeah. box package um, rather than something that might change your life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'm sure that they are working on that and, and it was one person that I spoke to, so it's not a really good straw poll no. and it was just his perspective. But, but it is that one of those things that once you're exposed to a little bit of it, you want to know more, you need the next level yeah. if you're going to stay engaged. In your research, have you crashed into much of the literature on post-traumatic growth? Yes, I have. Yeah, I find and that I, stuff really yeah, interesting. Yeah, I absolutely love it. And, you know, I'd, I'd like to think that that's what I have what gone through. What you had prepared for. You essentially set yourself up for post-traumatic growth Yeah, by the decisions you'd made before the shooting. Yeah. yeah. That's what I was thinking as you've been describing it. Yeah, so one of the things that, that I think has led to me being able to reflect and say maybe I had post-traumatic growth is that when I put my hand up and in hospital five days after being shot and said, get me a psych, I want to talk to a psych. Um, it actually took three months for me to get to a psych. Um, some issues there, but mm. when I got to the psych, I went to see Sandy McFarlane. Oh, yeah. Um, yep, you know Sandy? Yeah. 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 World-renowned trauma psychologist, one of the best in Adelaide. But he sat down with me and we had a three-hour, about a three-hour appointment. And at the end of that three hours, he said, Derek, you've got all this in trained so well, psychologically you can go back to work tomorrow. Mm. physically obviously I couldn't it took two and a half years before I was able to go back physically mm. but psychologically I was able to go back to work the next day and I think it's because I'd taken that responsibility for the choices mm. for the possible consequences and then also for the possible consequences after that as well I may be shot and injured but if I get shot and injured what are the possible consequences of that mm. it may be life in a wheelchair it may be going back to work full time and anything else in between mm. um, and when we had this conversation and he said you can go back to work tomorrow he actually also said and i never need to see you again yeah. because you've got it all there <laughs> yeah he actually said oh, but i will see you yeah, just so it'll be interesting and you'll learn lots because post-traumatic growth is an area that most people don't know enough about and you were probably the poster child for it you know in terms, you, that, what, uh, in terms of what was known here then because you know mid 90s no one knew enough no you know, it's got to the point now the u.s army have done post-traumatic growth pre-deployment training with a few units that went to Afghanistan and it halved the PTSD rate. Yeah, absolutely. Once you know that you can cope and what you need to try and do, the likelihood of coping goes up dramatically. And I think that starts from having the discussion about here are the possibilities. Yeah. This is what we want. This is the best, but this is also the worst. In fact, there's a really good Monty Python video that uh, <laughs> I like to use and, and I love Monty Python, uh, but it's called Monty Python the Coward. It's about a guy who joins the army and on the first day he walks into the major's office and says, I want to leave, I want to get out of the army, I want to resign. And he said, what? It's only been one day. He says, yeah, but there's people out there with guns and rifles and there's tanks. And you know, and if they say there's going to be a war, then, then we might have to go and fight and, and you can get killed. And it's not cross fingers, Barley's killed. And, and you know, <laughs> the skit goes for about three minutes. Uh, and, and it's all this iteration of all this stuff that could go wrong. Uh, and he says, 
why did you join the army? Ah, for the skiing and the travel in Europe. <laughs> because that's how it was sold to him. Yeah, that's how the advert portrayed and, it. And it's totally and utterly artificial. Uh, absolutely. But unfortunately, I think that's the approach that a lot of people take when they take on a new task. Let's look at the shiny things. What are yeah. the good things that could happen? I don't want to think about those difficult things because if I think about them too much, I won't want to do it. Now, when companies are recruiting people to take on these big tasks, whether it be police, whether it be in the mining sector, whether it be um, psychologists working with murderers in prisons, whatever it might be, where you know where we think, oh, there's going to be some big challenges. Sometimes, well, I say sometimes, my theory is quite often they actually don't say, hey, listen, these are the negative effects, these are the bad mm-hmm. things that could happen. Because if we talk about the bad things, they may say they don't want to work there. Mm. Well, I don't think that's true because most people are well aware of it. They don't talk about it a lot, but they're well aware of it. Now, if we have that conversation with someone, most often I believe, yeah, yeah, I know that, but so long as you're going to give me training, so long as I'm I'm aware of this, yes, they will be better prepared for Mm. it if it does happen. If you know what to do. When Correct. the bad day happens. Yeah. yeah. But if we don't have that discussion with those people and those people are the people who go, oh, my gosh, I can't handle that. If we don't have that discussion and then they get in and it happens, these are the people who go down with PTSD, stress, yeah. depression, very, very early and very, very quickly. See, I think we can extend this even out broadly to society that you know, part of attaining optimal performance more broadly for a society would be saying, okay, we had a GFC, Australia got off very light. But if we had a second one, and this time Australia couldn't dodge it, what are the little things everyone can learn to do before it happens? What little bits of financial literacy and competency could we all learn to help a system stay upright? And it's the fact that that's when we need it to be a a full-blown policy setting, not an individual responsibility setting. We need everyone to be getting the same exposure to training and opportunity. Absolutely. And part of that is, let's have a look around the world. Who are the countries that dealt with it really badly? What was the effect on them? What can we learn from what they did wrong? Mm. And then let's look at those who did it well. And, you know, we are fortunate we did it well, Mm. but we're not going to do it well every time. No, we've probably done our dash. Well, no, no, I don't think we've done our dash, but I say we're not going to do it well every time unless we actually put the learning in place, Mm. right, and we use what we've learned to develop further. What stands out to me, Derek, is that this is an incredible personal journey, but every part of it has this community element to it. You started off in the police force, which is a community-focused, I suppose, job, mm-hmm. and, and then continued into STAR, and then now you're continuing to share your story with the community in, in the form of this podcast, but also you know, in corporations. And I, I guess I would just want to ask, um, perhaps to finish up, what what kind of drives you to to better or impact your community in such a positive way? Wow, that's a deep question. I don't know. I don't (laughs) know. I could go back to my parenting. My parents are are, are very, very considerate, very thoughtful people, uh, and that's certainly what they brought me up with. As I'm sitting here thinking, maybe it's just that innate human nature of everybody that we actually want to look after people. If we can help someone... It, it draws the best out of us mm. to want to be able to look after someone else. One of the most powerful things that people can do is is actually say, hey, listen, I need help. 
because there are so many people that want to help. You've still got to be the person that drives everything that happens because if you are helpless and you want it all the time, then people will get bored of that. But I like seeing people thrive. I like seeing people achieve. And and I think some of the things that I have done, if I can share how I went about doing it, other people may be able to achieve things faster, easier. And don't get me wrong, when I say achieve things easier, there's always going to be struggle. If we want to achieve something, it means we're actually pushing ourselves. But we can make the process of that achievement more sustainable, more predictable, mm. um, and give them that sense of optimism that, okay, I might not be as good as that person, but there's a process that I can follow. Everybody's got their own process. So if I can share those things and, and see other people achieving, it makes me feel good. Excellent. Well, we've covered a lot of ground. I think you and David have delved into some awesome areas of more research, where, where more research needs to be done and some concepts that yeah can be continued to be explored but you've also um yeah shared with with us as well um just your personal journey which is incredible and i'm sure our audience um is very grateful and we are also very grateful for for you coming here it's been um, very interesting so. i've loved my time here um been fascinating talking uh, with speaking with both of you thank you very much thank you very much for coming along today derek it would be lovely having you on and if you ever want to come back just yell yeah. But more than welcome. You want me to yell now? Because yeah. I can tell you right now, I've really enjoyed the conversation. The depth that you have taken the conversation to with the different perspectives that you've come from have given me a lot to think about as I go away. So, cool. I love it. We'll organise number two then. Excellent. Look forward to it. Hello, listeners. You didn't think you were going to hear me after the end of the music, did you? I'm here today to say we now have merchandise. You can have a Blind Insights t-shirt. You can have a Blind Insights pin. You can have a Blind Insights hoodie. You can have a Blind Insights coffee cup. All you need to do is go to oscast-network.myshopify.com and click on Blind Insights and you can see all our products. Thank you very much to the Oscast Network for their support and making this happen.